One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. All right, well, if you have your Bible, why don't you grab it with me today and turn to the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua this morning. And uh, I know there's a lot of things going on around the community center, and so we will just try to focus in this morning on the book of Joshua. And uh, we are continuing a series that we uh, have been in for a few months now that we're calling Possessing the Land. And uh, we are really looking at the book of Joshua and talking about how do we move into the destiny that God has for us individually and the destiny that God has uh, corporately, communally for our church. And uh, if there is a big idea out of the book of Joshua, it's probably this, that when God saves us, he doesn't just save us from something, he saves us for something. Just like Israel didn't just come out of bondage in Egypt, they came into and they were entering into a place of blessing. And that's really a picture of what God has for us. Every single person who has put their faith in Jesus, God has a place of blessing. Now, that's not a physical place. And uh, like Alex said earlier, blessing is not just, you know, everything's easy, everything is good. Uh, but it does mean that even in the hardships of life, God is still good and God is for us. And, and I believe that God wants us to all under, to understand that. Uh, he wants us to live with a sense of purpose a sense of direction uh, for our lives because he's taking us somewhere, amen? And uh, even us communally as a church, God is taking us somewhere. And we're going to be sharing in the upcoming week some updates on our building. I know some of you are like, whatever happened to the building? Uh, it, it is still there. In fact, if you drive by it uh, this week, there was some transformation happening in the building. And so here's what I just want to ask you to do. Pray with me for permits, okay? We are so close. And uh, JD and Brad have just been uh, working behind the scenes. And uh, somebody said this to me in the early days of this process. They said, if, every, if this was easy, everybody would do it, okay? And so we're going to press through and there's great things ahead of us, but uh, we want to draw some lessons, draw some encouragement out of the book of Joshua on the place, not just the physical place, but the spiritual place that God is taking us. And uh, so today I want to look at Joshua 7, and I'll give you a little disclaimer uh, right up front that this is today a bit of a heavy passage. Uh, this is a heavy passage. Some are like, yes. I'm so excited. <laughs> this is a heavy passage. You'll see what I mean in just a second. And, and to be honest, I've been kind of wrestling with this passage uh, because I, I, there's some passages in the Bible. Have you ever read any of those passages that you're like, I just like to skip over that. I just want to get to the victory. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, life is not always filled with victories. And I believe this, this is what I felt the Lord put on my heart, is that uh, heavy scriptures make strong Christians. Heavy scriptures uh, make strong disciples. And so that is my goal for you today, that, that you would not leave here feeling burdened under this heaviness, but that this would be a heaviness that would build you, that would encourage you, that would strengthen your faith uh, so that you can take hold of everything that God has for you. 
And uh, if you are uh, a note-taking person, you can call this message Killing Compromise. Ouch. Killing Compromise. All right. Joshua chapter 7. Let's start reading at verse 1, and we're going to get down to verse 9. It says this, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah took of the accursed things so that the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up. That was out of several million, okay? Let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from, the, uh, from before the gate as far as uh, Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, listen to this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when, the, when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, we want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture, God, we pray, let our hearts be open to hear from you today. God, I pray that you would come by your Spirit into this room. I pray, Lord, that you would supersede my ability with your ability. I pray that you would put your words in my mouth, God. I pray that your anointing would rest upon me and upon every hearer today, God, to hear and to receive. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On April 26, 1986, a string of explosions rattled through a nuclear facility in the north of what is today known as the Ukraine. That city was called, that small town was called Chernobyl. And the name Chernobyl now has become synonymous with the incident that happened that day. A, a nuclear meltdown that destroyed not only the nuclear facility, but that spewed radioactive material into the atmosphere. Uh, in fact, meteorologists uh, recognized that weather patterns were affected as far away as Norway and the United Kingdom. Uh, over time, the, the ongoing effects of this accident became evident because in addition to the 
uh, operators of the facility and the first responders who lost their lives immediately, the ripple effect of destruction continued for generations. In fact, uh, medical, expert years, uh, medical experts years later uh, estimated that between 5,000 to 9,000 uh, cancer-related deaths could be traced back to this incident. Uh, experts estimated that as many as 150,000 abortions happened uh, as a result of this incident. Mothers afraid of the lingering effects upon their unborn children and out of fear resulted to terminating the pregnancy. Several decades later, over two decades later, uh, medical experts um, estimated that that the total deaths related to this would be 985,000 premature deaths as a result of the accident at Chernobyl. And as shocking as that those numbers are, as, as uh, shocking as the bigness of the, uh, the effects and the death and the destruction that came out of Chernobyl is equally shocking when they investigated the cause behind the Chernobyl meltdown and the, the Chernobyl uh, nuclear failure, they found that the cause of the failure was not some major malfunction, but that the cause of the failure was a series of small compromises that, that ended up uh, undermining the security and the safety of the facility. It was a series of small compromises. And I share that uplifting story with you today just to give you a little context for where Israel was and where we find them in this passage because Israel here is, uh, is experiencing a failure. In, in fact, the first failure that Israel has experienced since they have come into the promised land, they had been on a winning streak. They had come across Jordan miraculously. They had come to Jericho, the first city in the promised land, and miraculously, God had worked to give them the city. They had been winning and winning and winning, and here they are now experiencing a fatal failure. In fact, the Bible even says that their hearts melted, and so it's not an exaggeration to say that Israel was experiencing a meltdown. And when you read the context of this passage, you will discover, and for the sake of time, I'd encourage you to read it on your own, but as you read this passage, you will discover that the cause behind Israel's failure, the cause behind this defeat to the army of Ai or from the army of Ai, the loss of life incurred by the men of Israel was not caused by some, uh, some uh, you know, major malfunction. It was, in fact, caused by a compromise, by a small compromise. If you read the whole context, you'll find that God had, in fact, given Israel instructions as they were entering into uh, the promised land. He had given them instructions about how they were to live, how they were to behave, how they were to uh, function as they moved into the purposes of God. There were instructions that they were to follow. And one of those instructions was this, that as they took over uh, the cities of Canaan, that 
the first city of Canaan, all of the wealth of Jericho, which was the first city they came to. I know sometimes we kind of get our geography a little confused, but that was the first city. Canaan was the whole area. Jericho was the first city. And God had given them these instructions. He said, uh, all of the wealth of Canaan is, is yours. I, I want to bless you. And, and as you take over cities, all of that wealth belongs to you except the wealth of Jericho. And here's what God said, that the wealth of Jericho is to be brought into the house of the Lord. Now, uh, the, the reason for this was ultimately it was a, um, a picture of redemption. It was a picture of redemption. Uh, Canaan was under a curse. It had, it had been under the control of ungodly groups of people, sinful ways of living, and, and their, their way of life had become so destructive that the Bible says it was cursed. And God says, in, in order to experience the blessing that I want to put on this place, you're going to have to redeem this place. And so here's the principle of redemption. The principle of redemption is this, that when we give God the first, the rest will, come blessed, will, will become blessed. And, and that was a pattern throughout the Old Testament. They were to give the first fruits of their flock. They were to give the firstborn. Uh, ultimately, it's all a picture of what, what God has done for us, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation that is sacrificed to break the curse over all of humanity. But God said here, the, the wealth of Jericho belongs to me. Don't take this for yourself. Don't take this for yourself. He said, I want you to bring this into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And so as Joshua goes before the Lord to inquire and to investigate, what's the source of this failure? God reveals to him that someone in Israel had broken the instructions. The someone in Israel had in fact taken what the Bible calls the accursed things and had brought them into their own house. And so if you read the passages that follow, you'll see that Joshua, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, leads an investigation and ultimately a trial and a sentence. And here's what Joshua did. He brought all of Israel out after this defeat. And God says that someone has taken the accursed things. He brings all of Israel out and he takes them tribe by tribe. And he goes through the tribes and God reveals to him one of the tribes where the sin was. And then he took the clans and the families and ultimately God spotlights a guy named Achan. That's a spotlight you don't want on you, okay? God spotlights a guy named Achan. And, and Achan gives, uh, or Joshua gives Achan the opportunity to, to confess. And Achan confesses. He says, I've taken, uh, I've taken the accursed things. I took a Babylonian garment. I took a bar of gold. I took uh, silver. And they've, they're buried in my tent. And here's what the sentence was over Achan. Joshua chapter 7, verse 25 and 26, it says this, And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us to Achan? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Now, somebody mentioned a life verse. I don't remember if it was Nate earlier mentioned a life verse. I've heard of a lot of people having a lot of life verses. I've never heard anybody choose Numbers 7, or I'm sorry, Joshua 7.25 as a life verse. Uh, I've seen a lot of Christian tattoos. 
I've never seen. They stoned them with stones and burned them with fire as a Christian tattoo. I've seen a lot of Christian coffee cups. I've never seen this verse on a coffee cup. So you may be hearing this and thinking, what in the world is happening here? Like, I thought God was good. I thought God was loving. I thought God is love. What in the world? Whoa, Nellie, what is happening? Well, let me, for just a moment, talk to you about the doctrine of sin. And so I want to back up for just a moment. I know you woke up this morning. You're like, I hope he'll talk about the doctrine of sin. I hope this is a Sunday that he talks about the doctrine of sin. All right, so let me talk to you for just a second about the doctrine of sin. Now, the doctrine of sin, here's, here's how we need to start with the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin doesn't start with, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. Okay, the doctrine of sin starts with, God is so good. God is so good. He is overflowing with goodness. In fact, the only reason that we have any measurement in our lives for what is good or what is not good is because there is an objective standard of goodness outside of ourselves, and that is the reality that God is good. And God, out of His goodness, has created a good world. When you read the beginning of the Bible, He creates the sky, He creates the earth, He creates the the oceans and the rivers and all of creation, and He said that it is good. And then He made mankind, and He said it is very good. And the Bible says that God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That blessing is the projection of God's goodness over His creation. So He created a good world. He put mankind in the, his good world. He blessed him and he said, I want you to live the good life. But if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you know that it's not very far before the story takes a turn. Now, ultimately, Adam and Eve do what all of mankind has done. And we have believed the lie that we could live the good life without God. That if we were just in charge, if we just had our way then life would really be good. And as a result, the Bible says that sin entered into the world. God is the source of life. God is the source of goodness. And separation from God, the life source, the natural uh, result, the only result is death. And so as we look around the world today, we can't help but recognize that although there are glimmers of the beauty of God's goodness, a beautiful sunrise over the beach, a newborn baby being born, perhaps sitting down with a a group of friends, maybe having a, a barbecue and eating great food and drinking great drink, it's just a picture of, wow, life is good. There is goodness in the world. There are glimmers of God's goodness, yet you don't have to be a theologian to recognize something is broken in our world. All you have to do is turn on the news. All you have to do is is look around our city at the the, the tragedies and the brokenness and the despair that, that, that permeates so many lives and so many parts of our society, and I would love to tell you that it's just there's some bad people out there, 
And if we could just get rid of the bad people, if we just sent the bad people somewhere, maybe Alabama or something like that, then we could all live the good life. I'd love to tell you, no offense to any Alabamians, all right? I'd love to tell you that, that it's just the good people and the bad people. That, but the fact is that within all of us, although we all carry the beauty of God's goodness as image bearers uh, of God, the fact is that we have all become broken. I, I recognize it even within my own self. I find myself at times doing things that I know are destructive, doing things that, that are counter to my deepest desires and my deepest values. Now, some of you may hear this and you may think, Justin, it's 2022. Get with the times. I did say the right, you're right, 2022. I got to work on that. Justin, get with the times. This sin talk, uh, you know, it's, this, is, this is irrelevant, okay? This is no longer a thing. You need to get with the times, Justin. There's, there's no longer objective truth. And, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. And, and here's what I'd say. Just let somebody rear-end your car and then drive off. How many of you know all of the moral fog would suddenly become very clear in that moment? There would no longer be this nebulous uh, thing of your truth and my truth. The truth would be they are wrong and they need to pay. Isn't that right? Because within all of us, there is a desire for justice because ultimately, justice is a manifestation of the goodness of God. That's why when we see abuse to children, that's why when we see social uh, problems and, and poverty and the destructive forces of sin in people's lives, within all of us, there's this groaning within our hearts. This is not how it should be. Something is broken. So what do we do with this passage of Scripture? What do we do with the story of Achan? Well, the Bible says in the New Testament that all of these stories were written for our, uh, for our admonishment. This is not just a story from the past that can be brushed off as outdated. The Bible says, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that this is written for our admonishment. The reality is that in this passage of Scripture, we are seeing the, the unfiltered effects of sin, that sin kills and sin destroys. Now, for most of us who are in this place, if you're a follower of Jesus or even the kind of person that would want to come to church, the reality is that for most of us, we're not going to drop a nuclear sin bomb on our lives. Most of us are probably never going to just nuke our lives with some, you know, horrific, obvious, destructive sin, right? I mean, uh, we can list them and, and the things that, you know, get people on the news, right? Now, most of us are probably not ever going to do that. We're probably not going to ever nuke our lives with sin. But, but here's the message of this passage of Scripture that small compromise leads to great failure, Small compromise leads to great failure. Or we could say it this way, that compromises kill, therefore we must kill compromises in our lives. Now you can be a Christian, you can follow Jesus, and you can still be caught under the effects of sin in your life. I believe that Achan went to heaven. I believe that Achan, apparently he had been a part of the group that just 
uh, a few passages earlier had uh, recommitted themselves to the Lord in a very sacrificial act. I won't mention it again. Um, but there was, apparently he had made a profession of faith. By every account that we can see, uh, he was a person of faith. And, and I believe this, that Achan probably made it to heaven, but he missed his destiny. Some people say, well, uh, that's legalism. You know, it's, it's all about God. It's nothing that I do. Well, our righteousness is a gift from God, but our actions determine our reward. Therefore, you can make it to heaven and miss out on the reward that God has for you. And so today, my encouragement to us is let's not allow little compromises to creep into our lives. Let's not allow little things, little attitudes, little bitterness, little anger, little lust, little, you know, coveting, little gossip. Let's not allow those things to creep into our lives because compromises kill. And so I want to give you a few things that I believe we can learn of this passage of Scripture about compromise. And I wrestled, honestly, even up to this point, I've wrestled with this passage of Scripture. I've wrestled with it in my own heart, saying, God, search me, try me, uh, see if there's any wicked way in me. I've also felt, God, I don't want to beat up on your people. I'm not finger-pointing. But I do believe if we never talk about sin, it doesn't solve the problem. It's like a doctor that just says, I, I never want to talk about cancer. Well, just because you don't want to talk about cancer because it makes people uncomfortable does not make the problem go away. All right, so let me give you some points. I wish I had a joke to lighten the moment right now. I don't, but here's a few things I believe we need to learn about compromise in order to avoid the effects. Number one, compromise is rooted in disbelief in the goodness of God. A compromise, or, or ultimately we could say it this way, all sin is rooted in a disbelief in the goodness of God. Uh, I, I want you to notice with me in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, how this compromise happened in Achan's life. The Bible says this, he, he, Achan said, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. Now, remember that God had promised to Achan as a part of Israel, that he wanted to bless them. God said, I'm bringing you into a land flowing with milk and honey. All of your needs will be met. I'm going to just pour out my goodness on you in such a way that all of the world will want to come and see, what do those people have? That's what God had promised to Israel. And here, Achan sees a sweet Babylonian garment and goes, i got to have it. I've got to have it. You see, sin ultimately is at its root a disbelief or a lack of trust in God's goodness and God's willingness and ability to meet not only our needs but our deepest desires. When we lose our temper, 
what we are saying and when we lash out in a sinful way, it's not sin to be angry, but when we lose our temper in rage, what we are saying is I can't actually trust God to bring justice in this situation. I have to step in because God's not going to do it. God's an absentee landlord, so to speak. That's what we're saying. When, when we say, I don't need to follow the word of God regarding sexuality or, or regarding money, what, what we're saying, we may not have processed this, but what we're actually saying is, I know how to use my body better than God does. I know how to use my money better than God does. At its root, every sin is a disbelief in the goodness of God. That's why worship is so important. That's why worship is so important. In worship, we gaze upon the goodness of God. That's what we're singing this morning. I forget that second worship song that was so beautiful, but it was just saying, I can't get enough. I can't get enough. What are we saying? God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You satisfy the longings of my heart. You satisfy the desires of my heart. And here's what happens in worship. Your heart becomes reoriented, and the things that pull you away, the lesser desires that will pull you away to things that will ultimately never satisfy are reoriented to your greatest desire, and that is life with God. He satisfies our life. That's why David said, your loving kindness is better than life. Your loving kindness is better than life. Being with you is better than anything else. So number one, compromise is rooted in a disbelief of the goodness of God. Number two, I want you to see this, compromise grows from complacency. When we fall into complacency, when we fall into um, spiritual apathy, I, don't, I no longer need to spend time with the Lord. I'm good. The Lord knows my heart. I no longer need to gather with God's people. You don't have to be a, church, a Christian to go to church. Whatever it is, you don't, have to be, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Whatever that apathy is or self-confidence, that is the breeding ground. That's the atmosphere. Complacency is the atmosphere that compromise grows out of. If you notice the condition of the men in Israel, after they had just crossed the, the, the Jordan River, after they had won this incredible victory in Jericho, or actually God had won the victory in Jericho, they didn't do anything other than praise God, and God gave them the, the victory. But here's what they said in Joshua 7, verse 3. They said to Joshua, don't weary the people, for the people of Ai are few. In other words, they're saying, we got this. Dude, I am good. I don't, I don't need to, uh, we don't need to trouble ourselves. We don't need to put all that energy. I don't know why you're so radical on this. I'm good. I'm good. And that is the atmosphere out of which compromise grows out of that complacency. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As soon as we start thinking, I'm good, that's the very moment that we become vulnerable to the enemy's attacks in our lives. Compromise grows from complacency. Number three, I want you to see this, that compromise begins small but grows bigger. Compromise begins small but grows bigger. 
Notice the progression in Achan's life in Joshua 7.21. He says, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, he goes on to say, I coveted them and I took them. And we could add on to that, then I hid them. I saw them, I coveted them, I took them, and I hid them. Now, if Achan had seen the penalty from, of his sin at the first glimpse that he had of that Babylonian garment, how many of you know he would have seen that thing a little differently? <laughs> and, and that's the way the enemy always works with sin. He always works with temptation. He just shows you all of the good things, and he hides the cost. He hides the sticker price. He, he hides the effects that it will bring into our lives. It starts small, but it grows bigger. The, the enemy never starts to work in our lives, and our own flesh never starts to work in our lives with, I think I'm just going to destroy my family. I'm, I'm going to destroy my reputation. I'm going to destroy the, the life that God has given to me. That's not the way the enemy, and that's not the way our flesh and temptation works. It, it starts like this. Hey, you deserve a little bit of that. That Babylonian garment, I'm telling you, you would look good in that thing. You, you deserve it. You need to work it, Aiken. Come on, work it. There's a progress or a progression, maybe more like a regression, to the way that sin works in our lives. That's why James says it this way. No one is tempted by God, but each one is tempted in James 1, 14 and 15. Each one's tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. That's an ugly baby, okay? It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Nobody says, I want to release death into my life. How does it happen? It's the desires within. And it leads us into the place that then we become vulnerable and the progression unfolds. Therefore, I, I believe uh, the, the encouragement is fitting to all of us. Catch the little foxes. Jesus said it this way. Sin is like leaven. It, it, it's a little bit goes a long way. It spreads in our lives. It's, again, I apologize for, I'm not in any way trying to trivialize cancer, but it's like cancer. Nobody goes, just a little cancer is okay. Why? Because a little cancer becomes a lot of cancer. Therefore, we deal radically with a little cancer. The same is true in our lives with sin. It begins small, but it grows bigger. Compromise number four, I want you to see this, that not only does it start small and grow bigger, but also compromise causes shame. Compromise causes shame. Notice what Joshua, or I'm sorry, what Achan did in, in Joshua 7.22. He says, there it was, or they found it hidden in his tent. Notice that Achan was not rocking the Babylonian garment. He was not even getting to enjoy what he had done. It was hidden. And sin always produces this desire to want to cover, this desire to want to hide. Adam and Eve, the, the result of sin in their lives was this shame, this desire to cover. 
I know we live in a world that says, don't be ashamed of anything. Don't, don't cover anything. Uh, you, that, that it's okay. Don't let people judge you. Again, just because you say cancer is cool doesn't mean it's cool. It still kills. If it's trendy and in vogue and all the cool kids are doing it, doesn't mean it doesn't kill. It still kills. It still kills. And so it, sin produces death first in our spirits and then in our souls and ultimately in our bodies. And so many times when we live with hidden sin in our lives, there is this disintegration in our hearts. And here's why. Because outwardly we are wanting to present and to project an image of ourselves that is good to the world around us. But inwardly we know that there's something wrong in our hearts or in our spirits that does not align with the goodness of God. And so there is a separation between what we want to project and what we are internally, and it produces a disintegration in our souls. Integration or to be integrated means to be whole. It means to be the same throughout. And when we are externally presenting that something is good, but internally we know that there's something in our lives that is not right, it produces a disintegration in our souls, a brokenness in our souls. How many of the problems in our world, how many of the, the mental health challenges that, that are so prevalent in our culture are ultimately at their root a disintegrated soul? Now, not all of them. I know there are physiological causes. There are chemical imbalances. There is trauma. There is all kinds of painful things that has happened to people, which ultimately that is sin. That is sin that's been committed against someone and it creates a disintegrated soul. I believe that's what the Bible talks about when it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Notice it doesn't say to lose his spirit. It says to lose his soul. That's your mind, your emotions, to be broken, to be torn because we live with secret sin, secret shame that's tearing us on the inside of us. Compromise produces shame. Number five is this. Compromise steals your strength. It steals your strength. The Bible says of Israel that because of Achan's sin, Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies. Now, God had just promised to Israel, your enemies will not be able to stand against you. God had given them the victory, but because of this sin, because of this compromise, because of the failure of Achan, the Bible says that they weren't able to stand. They lost strength. Compromise will ultimately, unaddressed compromise in our lives will will rob us of the spiritual strength that we need in order to inherit and to obtain the promises of God. That doesn't mean that you're not saved, but salvation is about a lot more than justification. Salvation is about receiving all of the goodness of God. It's about a lot more than slipping out of hell by the skin of your teeth. It's actually about experiencing the goodness of God on your life. It's about living with confidence and living with favor and living with boldness and 
being a problem solver in the world rather than a part of the problem. And when we live with compromise in our lives, we may not lose our salvation, but we lose the joy of our salvation. We lose the experience of the victory that God has given to us because compromise steals our strength. Number six, not only does compromise steal our strength, but compromise creates distance in relationship with God. Here's what God said to Joshua. Because of this compromise, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed things from among you. God had just said, I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you. And here God says, I won't be with you. What does that mean? Here's, here's what we need to understand. There's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God or the special presence of God. The omnipresence of God is everywhere. Uh, the, the, that's why the psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. Put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. God is in hell even. Why? Because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there's a difference between his omnipresence and his manifest or his special presence. And that's what we as his followers can experience through the Holy Spirit. I, I, I know it in my, old, my own life. The Holy Spirit's always with me. But then there's moments where I go, wow, there you are, Holy Spirit. I experience what John Wesley says when he felt his heart strangely warmed because of the presence of God. And I'll tell you, when you experience that, you know that's the greatest joy of my life. God, don't take your presence from me. God, don't, I don't want to grieve your Holy Spirit. That's why Moses said, God, if your presence doesn't go with us into the promised land, we don't want to go. Because he knew more than the... <laughs> The milk and honey, the presence of God was the thing that satisfied the longing of his heart. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians, or the New Testament says Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you are sealed. You are sealed. That seal is not coming off of you, but you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God, the manifest, the special presence, the beautiful presence that produces joy and peace and life can withdraw from your life. Compromise creates distance with, in relationship with God. It's kind of like in, in marriage. You know, sometimes you can do things that doesn't make you unmarried, but it creates distance in the relationship. Who knows what I'm talking about? A bunch of perfect people in here. All right. <laughs> Just look straight ahead. Act like you ain't ever had a fight. I can give you an amen. All right. Your husband's not here, Deanna. So you, hey, Deanna's amen, and her husband ain't here. So, what is it? It's not that you lose your marriage. You lose the intimacy. You lose the relationship. That closeness. That's what compromise does in our life. Number seven, and lastly, is this: that con compromise creates collateral damage. This may be the heaviest. I told you it was heavy. This may be the heaviest. Compromise creates collateral damage. 
Look at what the Bible says in Joshua 7, verse 5. What happened is Israel attacked Ai. They were defeated and turned and fled for their lives, and 36 men were murdered. 36 men lost their lives because of Achan's sin. Even worse than that, the Bible says that Joshua obeyed the Lord in verse 24, and he took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, and listen to this, his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and he brought them to the valley of Achor, and he stoned them and he burned them with fire. God instructed Joshua to kill not only Achan, but also, and I know this is a tough passage of Scripture, I've been wrestling with it, to kill his sons and his daughters. That's probably the most difficult part of this story. Why would God kill or have Achan's sons and daughters killed? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us the answer, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but here's some thoughts. One may be equal retribution. Every legal system has a, an offense and a corresponding penalty. If someone runs a red light, they don't put them to death. It's equal retribution. But 36 men were killed. Therefore, equal retribution was not just the life of, of Achan, but of his whole family. Perhaps, perhaps... Achan's sons and daughters already demonstrated the same deceptive, destructive tendencies that were in their father. As I've heard it said, what walks in the father runs in the family sometimes. We, for better or for worse, perhaps that's it. I don't know. Or perhaps, and I think this is the most likely reason, perhaps his family, Achan's family, participated in the plot. And their involvement in this theft and deception resulted in them also losing their lives. But here's what I want you to see. What is, why is this in the Scripture? I, I believe this is why, because God is showing us the unfiltered effects of sin. The unfiltered, not watered down, straight up, effects, destructive effects of sin in our lives. Every problem in the world, and I know this is a bold statement, every problem in the world ultimately can be traced back to sin and its effects. And so if we deal with every other problem, but we never deal with the root, it will continue to spring forth. And so here we see the unfiltered effects of sin. Now, what's some good news? What's some good news? This has been a lot of heavy, a lot of bad news. I've been telling you so far all of the bad news. Can I tell you some good news? Here's some good news. That God in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that He condemned sin in the flesh that we might receive the righteousness, or we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus died so that we don't have to die. 
That's why we see in John chapter 8, in fact, if you have your Bible, flip over to John chapter 8. This is a, a New Testament picture of what happened in the Old Testament in Joshua 7. John chapter 8, and it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus, and they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, the law of Moses demands that this woman needs to be stoned. That was the same penalty that came upon Achan. And they say, what do you say? The Bible says that Jesus didn't utter a word, but he got down and he began to write in the, in, in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. Some people guess that maybe he began to write the names of some of the women that these Pharisees had been involved with themselves. We don't know what, what he was writing, but the Bible says that as he was writing, each one of the Pharisees began to disperse, and it says that they, they were convicted in their hearts and left. The stones, as they left, I can hear the, the stones that were due to her that, that were due as the penalty of her sin, and they had intended to stone her with, I can hear the thud of those stones as every single one of them fell to the ground. And Jesus turns to the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? She says, there are none. And he says, listen to this. Worship team, you can come back up. Listen to this and let this sink into your soul. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the good news. That's the good news that Jesus died the death that we should have died. He took the penalty of sin of all of mankind upon himself on the cross so that the just requirement of God could be satisfied. Therefore, Jesus and only Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you. I want you to hear those words today. In your worst moment, in the moment that you feel ashamed, in the moment that you feel unloved and unworthy, the word of God through Jesus Christ is, neither do I condemn you. But the second part of that is equally important. Go and sin no more. You see, salvation is not just about the forgiveness of our sin. It's not just freedom from the penalty of sin. Salvation is freedom from sin. The good news of the gospel is not just that we are not condemned, it's also that we can live a life set free of sin. How? How do we do that? For killing compromise, how do we kill compromise? Here's what I want you to hear. You don't kill compromise. God has killed compromise. Through his kindness, God has killed compromise. Kindness kills compromise. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God. That woman, I don't know what her life was like from that day forward, some people think perhaps it was Mary Magdalene. I don't know. But I do know this, that from that day forward, that woman's life was transformed because she had looked love 
straight in the eyes. She had seen the goodness of God. What's the cure for the effects of sin? The cure is the goodness of God, the grace of God. And when we receive the grace of God in our worst moments, our worst failures, we come back to the goodness of God has a transformative effect in our lives. This morning, we're going to receive communion, a reminder of the death of Jesus, the penalty that Jesus paid upon the cross. And here's what we're going to do today. Rather than all receiving together, here's what we're going to do is just take some time. We've got communion elements on both sides, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to individually before the Lord to come before God and to say like David said, search me, try me. See if there's any wicked way. Is there any area of compromise? Is there any way that I've been talking? Is there any way that I've not been behaving in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord? Search me, try me. Lead me in a way that is everlasting. So we're going to enter into just a a moment of worship, a time of worship for a few minutes. And here's what I want to ask you to do is to take a moment to examine your heart And when you feel perhaps there's an area that God brings to your mind that you feel like, God, I just want to bring this to you. This is an area of compromise. This is an area perhaps I've never even thought about, but God, I feel your conviction. I want to bring it to you. And I want to receive your grace. Maybe there's nothing. Maybe God doesn't bring anything to your mind. But once again today, we want to receive the grace of God the goodness of God as we remember his body and his blood that was shed for us. So I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to play. Then as you are ready, you don't spend till 1230, but if you just take a moment, a couple of, uh, maybe a minute or less, it's okay if you need less, but come and take communion. You can go back to your seat and receive it. So Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we thank you, Father, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Father, we thank you, Lord, that even in our worst moments, God, you have loved us. And Father, we pray that once again today, we would gaze into the beauty of your goodness. Lord, that we would bring our sin, we would bring, Lord, areas of compromise and disobedience once again to the foot of the cross. Lord, we would receive your goodness and your grace into our lives. Again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whenever you're ready, as the worship team plays, whenever you're ready, you can come, take the cup, go back to your seat. If you want to stand, you can do that, however you're comfortable. Let's just take a moment, turn our hearts towards the Lord.